0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today
1: with Byte. The Institute of Art and Ideas, Articles, Videos, and Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.
2: This week our speakers delve into humanity's fascination with evil. Are we fascinated by evil characters because they make life more exciting?
1: Why is it that we're fascinated by evil?
2: Whilst we may condemn
1: serial killers and abhor tyrants, our news and entertainment are obsessed with evil and violence. Is it because it makes life more exciting? Does it express our true nature? Should we look to end this morbid obsession or actually accept it as a feature of humanity? Taking on these questions, we have an amazing panel this week. We are joined by British literary theorist, critic and public intellectual who has published over 40 books, including On Evil, Why Marx is Right and Radical Sacrifice. Terry Eagleton.
3: Is that evil becomes sexy when virtue becomes boring.
1: Joining Terry, we have American moral philosopher, cultural commentator, essayist, and author of Evil and Modern Thought, Susan Nyman. The reason we
0: like focusing on evil, it's to steer our focus away from the real sources of evil.
1: And finally, philosopher at the University of Manchester and co-editor of the journal Representation, Stephen
4: DeVige. I think the fascination is really uh, a way of expressing our, our sense of horror at what these people are doing.
1: I'm excited for you guys to hear this episode, and if you'd like to hear more from our speakers, then I would recommend episode 73, The Swindle of the New, in which you can delve more into Terry Eagleton's ideas and examine novelty's strange perils. After listening to the episode, please do also check out our podcast page, available through the Institute of Art and Ideas website at slash podcast. Here you can find the latest updates from Philosophy for Our Times, where you can see a selection of featured episodes for you, sign up to our podcast newsletter, and subscribe to Philosophy for Our Times so you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening. Back now, Deanna Teller, who hosts this week's
2: episode. So let me jump straight into it. Are we fascinated by evil characters because they make life more exciting. Terry, you have the floor first.
3: Um, Why is evil so sexy? Why so glamorous? Why is everybody talking about gothic? Why does the devil have all the best tunes? Uh, Why would everybody want to share a whiskey with Fagan rather than an orange juice with Oliver Twist? Well, I think the short answer to that is that evil becomes sexy when virtue becomes boring. In the 16th and 17th centuries, with the rise of Puritanism and the middle classes in general, the middle classes are always rising, uh, virtue is redefined as thrift, prudence, temperance, chastity, and so on. Now, in the light, since nobody wants to be good in that way, if that's what good means, you don't want to be it, then that's the moment when evil becomes glamorous. It's a historical matter because it wasn't always true. If you look at certain ancient thinkers, if you look at the greatest theologian perhaps of all time, Thomas Aquinas. For Aquinas, virtue being good is exciting and exuberant and it's the way you flourish and it's the uh, way you express energy and evil is lack, deprivation, nothingness, negativity an inability to be fully alive an inability to flourish it's flashy but it's phony it's empty it's boring evil is paper-thin and without depth and it's boring Um, so the whole turnaround historically which ushers in the modern epoch Aquinas thinks that being is good in itself creation is good it's good that there are squirrels and telegraph poles and razor blades and glasses of water around the place. That is good. The demonic is that which is anti-creation, which is dedicated to reducing creation back to chaos. It's a reversal of creation, back to a kind of pure nothingness. And purity is very seductive, not least for fascists. And there's nothing more pure than absolute nothingness. So the demonic is a kind of anti-creation. It scoffs at human meaning and value, at the pretentious way in which we take our meanings and values so seriously. It's deeply cynical and nihilistic. It's Iago in the face of Othello. And it desires nothing more than to debunk and dishonor and deflate the petty pretensions of humankind. That's why The Demonic is a kind of sniggering and cackling, as it is in the greatest modern novel about evil, Thomas Mann's Doctor Faustus. The Demonic wants to smash all that. It wants to return us to the pure nihilism, nothingness. And it wants, moreover, precisely, to do that purely as an end in itself, not for any instrumental reason, but, to use a theological term, just for the hell of it. yes, Just for the hell of it. It's that, And that's one reason why evil is extraordinarily rare, thank God, it's very rare, because most wickedness is instrumental. You, you're wicked, you're immoral for certain purposes, right? Evil is that very, very strange kind of wickedness which is in it just for the game, which wants just to destroy as an end in itself. And having summoned up, that incidentally, uh, is connected with Freud's death drive to reduce everything to nothing uh, what some people call obscene enjoyment. And having summed up the whole of evil, I will now either leave or leave.
2: <laughs> We'll get back in a second. Uh, so Susan, I'm sure you dare venture into other aspects of evil. Uh, I I basically agree with everything you said, but I want to
0: go in a slightly different direction. Look at this. It's interesting to think about the way Christianity, Christianity's puritanical views about sex may have put the sex into evil. I'm not sure that that's the case. One of the reasons I love Pope Francis, you think I'm going on a tangent, but I'm not. I'm a Jew, by the way, but I love Pope, Pope Francis because um, every single religion is made up of a set of moral commandments. One has to do with you know, who you sleep with and how often and uh, what parts of your body you cover, and the other has to do with how you treat widows and orphans and the poor, and it's normally a mishmash of both of those things. And I think Francis has separated those two so that sex is just not part of morality in the same way that concerns for the weak and the poor are, and I think that's a great a great service. If it takes some of the sex out of evil, that's an additional service. I've come to think, in thinking about this question, that the reason we like focusing on uh, evil is actually a really bad one. It's to Um, to steer our focus away from the real sources of evil, which are what Hannah Arendt called banal. That is, they're not the things that are done with evil intention. They're not the things uh, that are done with a pure wish to annihilate simply for the hell of it. They're things like climate change, which take place, actually without too many people intentionally, meaning to damage anything whatsoever. And if you look at cases of genocide, the sorts of things that, um, you know, I traditionally looked at in, in cases of evil, you'll also find very few people, I mean, very few people in Germany um, were genuinely interested in murdering babies and uh, old men. That's not what they signed on for. They signed on for other reasons, and it's very important to look at that. So I think that we, we like to focus on, on these sensationalist characters because it keeps us from focusing on the evil that we should really be worrying about, which is that which takes place uh, without anybody's terrible demonic attentions.
2: Thank you very much. Um, And then we have... And Stephen, what's your take?
4: So, I don't largely disagree with what's been said here, which is a bit boring in a debate, of course. I I, I promise to disagree a little bit later on. What I I want to do right now is just give you a, a, a different way of thinking about this, and I come from it not as a literary theorist, not necessarily as a historian, but as a analytical philosopher. I'm, I'm a philosopher, by the way. Philosopher, sorry. No <laughs> philosopher. The question is, why are we fascinated by evil? Well, first of all, I'd like to make a distinction. Philosophers always make distinctions. And and the first distinction I want to make is between evil persons and evil acts, because I think they're quite distinct. They, they're related in some way, but they are distinct. You can have evil persons who don't commit evil acts, and you can have evil acts that are committed by non-evil persons. So why why are we fascinated with evil, and evil persons in particular? Well, I think the fascination is really uh, a way of expressing our our sense of horror at what these people are doing. Why is that? Because we all live in structures in societies, we all live and depend uh, on other people to have the kind of lives that we have. Our, Our well-being is dependent on other people behaving in certain kinds of ways towards us. That's the basis of morality, it's the basis of manners, it's those kinds of issues are very important to us. And we know that there are certain things that people can do that will make our lives intolerable, will make any decent life impossible, no matter what it is that you think your life should be. Why would it be impossible? Because as Stuart Hampshire, one of the great moral philosophers pointed out, there are certain things called the great evils. Homelessness, murder, torture, starvation, All these kinds of things are great evils which we try and minimize so people can lead tolerable lives, whatever kind of life they want to lead. What makes evil persons so worrying is that they have the motivation and the inclination and the wherewithal possibly to make our lives intolerable by acts which bring about the great evils upon us. And so our fascination really is one of, if you like, of incomprehension, of horror, of disgust, of a sense of pollution, that these people are in some important sense inverting or destroying our moral landscape, the way in which we ordinarily go about living lives which can be fulfilled, decent, reasonable. And that's where our fascination I think lies. And I'm not putting it away anything that Terry said. I think that, that what he said there probably comes in, in some way. But I think underlying all of that is this concern that evil persons are a very, very great threat to us.
2: Right, thank you very much. So we have from the... (laughs) The stage is set with the sexiness of evil, with the circumvention of banal evil and the intolerability that people can um, uh, throw upon us. I think we should start out then with saying, what is evil? I know you've been working on a definition of what evil then actually (coughs) is. Well, Stephen, would you elaborate on that?
4: Well, it's like asking how, how long is a piece of, of wood, right? There, <laughs> there, there are lots and lots of definitions of evil, and uh, there are religious definitions of evil, there are secular definitions of evil. In fact, up until fairly recently, definitions of evil tended to be within the religious uh, worldview. view. The last 20, 30 years, there's been a, a big movement amongst philosophers who talk about the secular conceptions of evil. Now. Conceptions of evil differ depending on where you want to put the emphasis. It depends on whether you're focusing on acts or whether you're focusing on persons. But I just want to make a distinction between a concept of evil, which I think we could all ascribe to, and the different conceptions of evil, the different ways in which you understand that concept. So what is the concept? Well, I'll go back to what I was saying earlier. The concept of evil is something which we all understand as being those actions or those persons that act in ways which somehow obliterate the normal standard moral ways in which we operate amongst ourselves so when you engage in torture when you engage in pedophilia when you engage in genocide when you engage in all those kinds of things you're doing you're 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 acting in a way that is destroying the standard way in which we operate together as moral beings and every society every society we have has some form of structure of moral discourse or moral relationships between each other so that their societies can work. May
2: I just throw in a follow-up yeah. quick? But many societies or many states, uh, they will use exactly torture and other sure. means that sure. we in other circumstances will consider evil for something they at least will tell us is for the larger good. Sure. So sure. will you still exactly. consider it evil or right. how do you then so, define so, a, so that?
4: So that's when you go back, that's, that, that's a really important point, is that people use these kinds of things which are Evil and claim that they're doing it in the process of good and evil states do that, right? Where we have to go from here is to understand that even though we might not agree generally on what a good life would look like, you could be religious, you could be secular, you could do a whole range of different things, we tend to agree on what's often called the sumum malum, the worst things that can happen to us. By virtue of the fact that we are the kinds of creatures we are, creatures that need to be loved, need to be fed and watered, need to be protected from physical violence, disease, and so on. We know the kinds of things, at a minimum, that we need to prevent in order for us to live decent lives. When you start using torture and claiming that that is something good, you are already violating that minimum requirement of what people require for decent lives. So although I am a moral realist, I'll just put that out there for you, I still think that there is a a basic foundation to morality which won't allow you to manipulate it in the way that you suggested.
2: Right, OK, thank you very much. Terry, I would like to or I would like to hear what your definition of evil is. Is there such a thing as an objective definition mm. in your opinion?
3: Mm. Just picking up Stephen's point, I think the worst thing that can happen to us is death. And also I want to, I uh, disagree slightly with Stephen, I want to keep the definition of evil kind of boringly precise and narrow, which is not fashionable in postmodern terms where everything is open-ended and plural and various and so on. Um, I don't think you get very far if by evil you mean very 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 bad Yeah, I think you miss the fact that evil is a very specific form of badness which is luckily extremely rare and Which is quite different from being wicked for instrumental reasons as I say on my theory Stalin and Mao were extremely wicked they killed thousands and thousands of people uh, but they weren't evil in the sense that I think for those who remember them here the Moors murderers were evil because the Moors murderers did what they did you know killed and dismembered little children purely for the hell of it with absolutely no view no utilitarian or instrumentalist eye to the consequences of it now in that sense for me and it may be a bit of a weird and narrow definition evil has a radical gratuitousness about it and in that sense what it resembles most ironically is creation because the doctrine of creation theologically has nothing to do with how the world got started it's not some kind of pseudo science creation it, it, it means all kinds of things, but it, um, among those, it means that the world is radically gratuitous. It's an act of grace. It's a gift. God didn't have to do it because he didn't have, doesn't have to do anything. And it may be looking around and play, play the place a pity that he ever did. Yes? Um, the devil is a fallen angel. That's very important. They are two sides of the same coin. The class of gratuitous things is very, very small. Very tiny. God, of course, who exists purely for his own sake. uh, Evil, as I say. Art, as it's been redefined since about the 18th century, as something which is gloriously autonomous and independent of its circumstances. And politically speaking, human beings, men and women, as we might be, under a different political system, which allowed us to, ex- as, and this is this is the whole morality of Karl Marx, which allowed us to express our energies purely for their own sake, rather than the sake of profit or labor or staying alive or whatever. That's Marx. That's the communist ethics, basically. Yeah. So I want to put evil in uh, among these other rather better things like art and communism and
2: stuff. Right. Okay. And Susan, would you like to? Yeah, your I would. definition, Every,
0: yeah. Yeah, well, um, ever since I wrote a book on evil 17 years ago, the first thing that people ask me is, what's your definition of evil? And my answer has become, why do you care so much? Because I don't actually think, I mean, I would tend to agree with Terry's definition if I thought it helped us very much, but I don't actually think, it does what we want a definition of evil to do, which is to help us pick out things that are evil from things that are just wrong. And you know, when Stephen was giving his list, I, I was actually quite disturbed because um, you, in, in, you put, you gave a list of things that you considered evil, and you put pedophilia right next to genocide. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to uh, define pe- uh, to defend pedophilia. It's just to say, come on, guys. Um, we're really, you know, throwing two completely different kinds of uh, human damage. I mean, one is human damage, and the other is human destruction. And so my problem with all the definitions of evil that anybody's ever tossed at me is, um, they're either so narrow that they leave out a lot of stuff, in particular, something like climate change, which is a perfect example of the banality of evil that doesn't fit. um, I mean, yes, it's nihilistic, it's potentially nihilistic, except nobody meant it that way. Um, Or it's so broad that it doesn't really help us. And my suggestion is then that what we learn how to do is analyze particular cases. This is something interesting. If I said I am a philosopher, I was trained by John Rawls and Stanley Cavell. I I have my chops as far as all that's concerned, but I actually think literature often does a much better job of looking at particular
2: cases of things. And I think that's Can I what you do. This when you make this distinction between, you know, systemic evil and the personal evil. Um, the thing is Is it then something that you could never say a person is actually evil, but they're evil actions because they have evil consequences? See, I I
0: understand there's a, I know there's a temptation to that, I understand the temptation to make that distinction, and I sometimes make it myself. But uh, I'm also Kantian, and I think to um, really make a statement about whether someone was evil, you would well, first of all, you would have to decide that evil is a matter of intention, which I don't think it is. And secondly, you would also have to be able to know their intentions. Kant says we don't even know our own. Uh, and I think that's, or often, we don't even know our own. I am deeply sympathetic and, and support the, the, uh, the intention to distinguish the evils committed by Stalin and Mao from the evils committed by Hitler. uh, I mean, as a Marxist myself, but I don't think that um, one can even say, I I, I mean, I I don't think there's a clear distinction in terms of intention there either.
4: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
2: Right, we get into the detailing here. But let's move on from here. We talk about the definition. Um, and I wanted to move to the personal, to the second theme, but you have something specific. Well, I just, just uh, wanted
4: to respond. I mean, right. kind of was caught in a pincer movement. Yeah, there, so. fine. Um, <laughs> for, for, uh, for first is that I, I, I just wanted to know if Terry makes a distinction between evil persons and evil acts. Uh, because I think you are extraordinarily generous to people like Mao and Stalin. Uh, their actions, you know, I'm not going to go into the details, but but you know the kind of mm-hmm. destruction they wrought. And it, it wasn't always with, with e- even the most supportive person couldn't say that their motives were always pure in the actions that they were engaged in. Well, certainly, um, I think that. So, yeah. so uh, I, I, just, I just think that that's probably a, a failure of the distinction between persons mm-hmm. and acts. Now, we could argue about whether you think Stalin was an evil person. I think he was. Mm-hmm. But you might not think that's the case. But certainly, his acts were evil. I mean, the killing of millions of Kulaks, for example.
2: What do you say to this, Terry? Just briefly. Well, I I wasn't
3: arguing. I, I, I was in no sense arguing on the part of Stalin or Mao. I was trying to make a distinction, which I think helps to make the word evil useful, rather than just slinging it around. I would never call climate change evil. A tragedy, a catastrophe, yes, a criminality, an outrage, maybe. But if you use the word evil about things like that, it begins to blur at the edges. What I mean, Stephen, is just that, the, that what the, the horrors that Stalin committed, and Mao committed, of course they killed far more people than Hitler did, um, were done for, um, as it were, a perverted instrumental end. They were political actions. They weren't done, Stalin didn't kill Kulaks just for the hell of it, he killed them for certain reasons. But yeah. not did
2: Hitler, Hitler believed that. You know, it was better for uh, Europe and Germany to have an, a clean area and
3: racially. Yes. Well, race. you can argue so he that. Also had you, a you, can, you can argue that, although you can go. also ask why did he believe that, and is yes. that belief itself mm. a rational one? Right. Or but that's the distinction that I'm trying to make. That's uh, to say that there is, um, there is a peculiar kind of evil, which, which, which is what psychoanalytically one would call uh, what is now known as jouissance. Uh, obscene enjoyment, the obscene enjoyment in the dismembering either of others or of oneself, as far as the Freudian death drive goes. And I think that is qualitatively different from, say, killing lots and lots of people. I don't mean that evil is always worse than being wicked. I mean, I think that Stalin and Mao were far worse than the Moors murderers. We have to, to Because the Moors murderers only killed about six people and Stalin and Mao killed a lot more.
2: Did you have anything more to retribute on this or we no, go I'll, on I'll, to the I'll, next? I'll come back to Because I think this it, yeah. leads exactly into, we want to make it more concrete, does the presence of evil characters in our cultural life, in our realities, encourage immoral behavior. I think, you know, Susan, maybe you would wanna start. Yeah, I'm gonna take And a, can I ask all of you to try and be-, be short. Yeah, you know, sure, and clear really, to your point. I'm gonna yeah. take a
0: really hard line on this. We argue that we need to go back to the time when goodness and heroism were painted uh, in glorious and sexy colors. Uh, I'm somebody who used to never watch television and like many, many people, was brought to the current state of television by The Sopranos. Uh, there's now a formula of a set of series in which you have a character that's actually committing rather evil actions, but they're very complicated, um, they're psychologically interesting, they're quite addictive, and I think they're poisoning us. But I I really think the absolute absence of someone who's acting well for the right kinds of reasons is letting us all off the hook. And in the absence of models of virtue, we can all kind of lean back and get lazy.
2: So it does manipulate our minds, is your point. We think about yeah, all the talking about Ted Bundy films about him. I'm from Scandinavia. We write loads of thrillers of yeah, exactly, women being dismembered in all sorts of rather peculiar ways. Terry, is, is evil banal? Should we stop giving evil characters space? And that would then, you can say, purify our minds in a certain way, reducing evil.
3: Sociologists of culture have been asking for decades whether life imitates art. Oscar Wilde, of course, thought quite rightly it was the other way around, yes, that life imitates art. And nobody has come up with a definitive answer. The best they can say is that some kinds of behavior in certain circumstances affect adversely certain kinds of people. Now there's a strong definition for you. <laughs> we don't know. I mean, there's been. Uh, Even before the new media, when we were talking about the old-fashioned, boring, you know, television, uh, newspapers, um, cultural sociologists were raising this question and they don't have an answer because it's just so complex that any one-to-one correlation between, you know, an evil on television or wherever it is and a certain piece of behaviour seems very problematic. So I really don't know.
2: So, and what do you say to this, Stephen? Does society get better or worse? Is it like an outlet that we see films about the evils and hopefully there's a hero knocking somebody in the head at the end? Or is it worse when we constantly see killings or the computer games, for example, nowadays that are all about killing somebody rather than doing good in the world?
4: I mean, we see a lot of this kind of stuff on the screens, but most people are able to distinguish what happens on the screen from real life. In fact, we're pretty shocked when people don't do that Um, and so I'm not entirely sure what the relationship is between what we see on the screens as you mentioned all those people have watched all these homicides and so on but never and how it affects our behavior but what what I do want to say is that when you have uh, evil persons who have positions of power they tend to use that power to manipulate and to get other people to do things that are immoral so there is a there is a a problem with societies that allow evil persons into positions of power and into institutions that have power, police forces, judiciaries, and so on. Because once they're there, they manipulate others who are not necessarily bad, but either don't understand what they're doing or are easily persuaded, and they start doing things which can be considered to be evil. And again, uh, those people, as I, I want to go back to the distinction between persons and, and, and acts. Many, many people commit evil acts, but they're not evil persons. They're rare, as Terry said. They're re- You rarely find evil persons, but when you do, it's a real whopper. Right? right. They can really do terrible things, especially if they get inside right. the institutions with so much power that we have in our society.
2: But I think Susan has something to say on, yeah, on I, this I mean, one, and we the... don't act in a vacuum in any case, do we? Susan? No,
0: and I agree with both of my colleagues. Of course, there's no clear yeah. empirical, you, you know, proof that watching a certain amount of, of uh, you know, murder leads you to murder. Of course not. Mm-hmm. Um, But I think when the space of possibility by particularly popular art is taken up by increasingly fascinated, extremely cynical people, it becomes harder and harder to not feel embarrassed about voicing idealistic views, about attempting to do idealistic things. I think embarrassment plays a huge role in our culture. You know, I think that that's fed by filling up all of the space with a set of uh, cynicism and sinister people, whereas I just think people know from their own cases, if you see one, someone acting heroically, a piece of you wants to follow.
2: Right, I think that leads into our third theme. Should we and can we end this morbid obsession with evil, or do we need to accept that evil is part of humanity, um, and somehow just live, live with it and say it's also maybe what gives yeah, meaning somewhere. Um, Terry, do you have a uh, bit uh, on this? Um,
3: I think if, um, if Freud is believed, and I can't hear developed, the connection between evil and the death drive—I think it's crucial—and it's often not looked at in discussions of evil. If Freud is to be believed, then the answer tends to be rather pessimistic. But Freud was rather pessimistic, partly because of the era in which he lived. That is to say, it would seem on Freudian terms that something like the death drive is built into us, um, which also indicates that it perhaps has some uses. In other words, the fury that the superego unleashes on the poor, pitiable ego. And Freud has great compassion for the ego. Ego can't win, basically. The fury that it unleashes on the ego can be extroverted, can be turned outwards, and becomes, well, in a word, a sadistic destruction. Now, insofar as sadism and masochism would seem to be built into what we are, the kinds of creatures we are, yes? Uh, that's a big claim, but, but I think probably it is true, then it would seem that we can't get rid of the death drive, we can't get rid of sadomasochism, and that is a challenge to postmodern culturalism. For postmodernism, culture goes all the way down. There's nothing that's not cultural. For me, that's a gross error. You know, It overlooks the fact that in the first place, human beings are lumps of material nature. Whatever more sexy things we can get up to, we have to accept that as a starting point. That's being a materialist. Freud is an out-and-out materialist in his own way. And for him, it's part of what we are. It's part of the traffic between the small infant and its guardian and so on that certain desires and drives begin to germinate that you could only change if we weren't all prematurely born. But because we're all prematurely born, which is to say, because we all have an unnaturally long period of dependence on our carers, unlike, you know, calves who just, you know, time, who just yeah. get up and lick themselves <laughs> down and walk away, you know? um, because of that, all kinds of awful things happen to us later on. Right, well, so, to me anyway, I don't
2: know about uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, What do you say to this, uh, Stephen? Is evil an integral part of us, a part of moral reality we have to deal with? Or is there a dynamics in it also that some cultures, for example, can do away with the evil? Or?
4: So I, th- I think it's a combination between the genetic and the environment. And of course we want to reduce evil. We want to reduce evil acts and we want to make sure there aren't evil persons. Will we ever do that? It'll depend on whether we can set our institutions in the ways that will prevent people from doing evil acts. And it will also depend on the genetics. I mean, if we can start genetically making people in certain kinds of ways, which we're very, very far away from, and it's got all sorts of moral problems in itself, maybe then we can do it. So the short answer to that, and I'll keep it short, is that it's with us for a while. So it's not going anywhere.
2: Right. Thank you very much. And what do you say, Susan? Can we learn from evil, and can we learn to not be evil? I mean, I agree with both Stephen and and Terry that both
0: for genetic reasons, although I'm not entirely sure about Freud and the death drive, I'm not entirely convinced. But for and, and for structural reasons, um, evil is not going away anytime soon. But uh, I don't think that means we need to accept it. I think we need to push back as hard as we can. Um, and in particular to push back against titles like The Lure of Lucifer
2: and uh, you know, the <laughs> various things that try to make evil alluring. Right, I think that's a very good point to So please help me in thanking this fantastic panel.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. This podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week, with Terry Eagleton, Susan Nyman, and Stephen Devige. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode, so please do head over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. Make sure you've subscribed and tell anyone you know that might be interested in the podcast. And please do tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.